0: The podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney. Although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession, we are studying the problem of apostasy, taken from 2 Timothy chapter three and verses twelve to fifteen. Class teacher Doug Brady has been carefully bringing forth what is in the Scriptures and things that are bringing ruin to Christianity as it was planned by God Himself. And today's lesson is filled with this kind of information that is important for Christians to understand. You will surely want to have your Bible open to 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we begin. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Our class is populated by over 150 who are anxious to learn more about what the Bible has to say about apostasy. If you are in the Dallas area, we invite you to visit our class. Well, I see that Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom and find a good seat. Open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and get ready for a great lesson. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady.
1: We are talking about apostasy today, and we are going to start in... I've, I determined this week as I was re- that I shortchanged you on, on a passage or two, and we're going to look at those today, but before we start, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend together today. I pray that you'll be with my wife and that you will take away the pain and injury in her knee and ankle and that she will be made well very soon. Pray that you will continue to work through our legislature in doing what's right, and be able to show the nation what a civilized state does, as opposed to a barbaric one. I pray also, Father, I want to pray, Father, that you will fulfill one of your promises, and that you will judge the wickedness in the high places of our nation, and you will bring about your condemnation on them, and that you will do it in such a way that no one can deny divine intervention and that the actions that were taken against this evil that is oppressing us will be clearly laid at your doorstep. And that you will use that event to place the fear of you in the hearts of our people as a start of a tidal wave of spiritual outflowing that bring about the greatest revival the world has ever seen. And I pray that you will do this one last time before you come back. Otherwise, there are so many people in this nation and the rest of the world who will have to spend eternity in hell, and I know that you don't want any to perish. Be with us as we study today. Speak through me. Keep the distractions away. Help me to be able to focus. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's look first at 2 Timothy 3, 10-11, a truncated version that I want you to see. He says, now you followed my persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, and what persecutions I endured, and how the Lord, uh, out of all of them, the Lord rescued me. Now, when you think about that, as Paul traveled on his first missionary journey through, southern, through Galatia, which is southern Turkey, he was extremely successful. Now, that you could say he, he wasn't, and he was, because he would always go first to the Jewish synagogues, and he would reason with them, and he would present the gospel, but most of the time they would reject him. Some wouldn't. But the majority would. Then he would say, okay, if that's what you want and you want me out, I'll go. And I will preach the gospel to the Gentiles and to the Greeks. But when he would have this tremendous success among non-Jews, Gentiles, they would get furious with him. And they would try to throw him out. And they did that at Antioch. They did that at Iconium. And when he was having great success in Lystra, they came from Antioch and Iconian and the people at Lystra, and they just caused such hatred that they decided to stone Paul. And they stoned him, and they killed him, and they dragged him out of the city and leave him there. Now, I said they killed him. They believe they killed him. Now, I've heard it suggested by some, no, they really did, and he was raised from the dead. I don't think so, because that would have been brought out as a miracle of God if that had happened. But that's what's going on. Now, Paul is there showing this to tell Timothy, you need to spiritually persevere like I did. What did he do after coming around? I want you to see that today because that's what we need to understand. I want you to remember, Paul is telling Timothy, I did not quit. I didn't lose heart, I didn't give in, and I went back into that identical city that had tried to murder me, and I completed the task that God gave me to do. Now, what we read last week, appears that he went in, got his stuff, and left. And that may be accurate in the first instance, but we didn't read the, the following verse. But the Jews came from Antioch, this is Acts 14, starting in verse 9, and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the pit city, supposing him to be dead. And while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city, and the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. But in verse 21, after they had preached the gospel in that city, Derby, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. And I want you to think about this. Do you think there may have been a few people there? Say, Paul, you shouldn't go back there. Don't you remember what happened last time? Paul was a man who was led by the Holy Spirit because he knew. If there was no Holy Spirit, it would be extremely dangerous and he shouldn't go back there. But if the Holy Spirit is directing you, you remember what Jesus told us in John 10. You are held in the Father's hand. Can anything happen to you when you're in the Father's hand unless he allowed it? Nothing can happen to you. I want you to think about this. Can you jump out of the Father's hand? No. No. He's holding you. Nothing can take you from the Father's hand. That's so important to understand. Yes? Also, God provided Barnabas. So we need to encourage each other. Barnabas was the encourager. He was. And they were there together. Now, however, the ability to spiritually persevere, who really provided that? Now, there's an interesting passage. Some of us, we don't think about that much. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. It says, For consider him, that is Jesus, who had endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Who had endured more than Jesus? No one. Who endured such hostility by sinners against So that you, and here you is plural, will not grow weary and lose heart. So that you will have the strength to continue on and to persevere. Jesus did that for us. He gave it. Why? Because he knew we would need it. And he provided that for us. Now, that brings us to the next passage here in Timothy. I want you to see. But let me ask you this. Has anyone ever gone into a Christian bookstore or novelty store and there you can see a little, you'll see a little book that says the promises of God or the promises of the Bible. Has anybody in here ever seen one of those books? Anyone ever bought one or get it as a gift or something? And it has the promises that they've extracted from the scripture. I'm going to show you a promise that you won't ever find in one of those books. And it's next here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, does that sound like a promise to you? (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's a promise. And I want us to look at that for just a second to see. I want you to notice the very first word. We kind of pass over that, indeed. Now, we're not talking about some company that helps you hire employees. We're talking about the meaning of this English word, and it's a word used to express something is correct. It gives emphasis to the statement. You know, we here in America, we have lived in a historical bubble. We have been protected by our Constitution and the quality of leaders we have had from this type of persecution. I am convinced that that bubble is popping and popping very soon. Now, it uses this term, will be persecuted, dioko. And this word can have two different meanings. It can be persecuted such that it forces you to flee, and you just have to run. That's what happened to the early church in Jerusalem. But, of course, that's what God wanted, because he wanted them scattering all over everywhere to take the gospel. It also can mean, in a way, to harass, trouble, or molest someone. Now, when you look at this verb... We need to understand it is not in the subjunctive mood, but the indicative mood. Now you say, you're talking to me in Greek right now, Doug. What in the world does that mean? Well, subjunctive mood is used to express a wish or a doubt or a hypothetical situation. In the other hand, an indicative verb is one that expresses a factual statement. In other words, this is a promise this will happen. You know, if I promise you something, for the most part, it's subjunctive. Can I really do it? Well, hopefully I can. You know, I could promise Don something I'm going to do next Sunday, and I could get killed before then. Then I couldn't fulfill my promise. But when God makes a promise, is it ever in this subjunctive? It always will happen. And that's this promise, and it is coming, and we need to understand that. Now, I want you to look at one other word in this verse, and it's the word desire. All who desire. What does that mean? You just kind of wish that you were going to live this way? Well, some people kind of think of a desire as a wish. But but desire means more than that, and it's really a two-part concept. It is, for the most part, a wanting to do it, But then a resolve or purposing to do it. I am going to do that. Now, there are some of us have stronger wills than others. And when we say we're going to resolve to do something, you can count on it. Others, maybe not so much. But that can be overcome by the resolve made through the Holy Spirit. And if you are going to resolve to purpose to live a godly life... There's going to be persecution coming. And what we're learning is from outside the church and from inside the church. It is coming. Now, what is said next? And out of them all the Lord rescued me. Now, you know what some of us tend to think? You know, that was back in the first century times. And, you know, he had to do that to protect the church because it was so small. And he had to protect Paul because Paul was going to be in such an important position in the church. Yes, it was in first century times. And yes, he was in that situation. But does God's attitude and working with his children ever change? What does it say in Malachi 3.6? For I, Yahweh, do not change. I, Yahweh, do not change. That means God is immutable in his character, unchanging. He does not change over time. There aren't circumstances that say, well, i got to change what I'm doing now. Uh-uh. What he gave to Paul, what he gave to Martin Luther, and what he gives to us is all the same. And we need to understand that. He is there to see us through. When trials come, he will hold you by the hand and take you through them. Unless, of course, what he needs to do is carry you. That's what our Lord will still do. Now let's look at the source of it. In 2 Timothy 3:13 it says, "But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. There will be apostates," Paul is saying, who have been deceived. They honestly believe some of the false things, heretical things they're teaching. And this word deceived, what does it mean? It means to lead astray, to cause to stray. They have been led astray, and they are seeking to lead others astray. Because I think they believe what they were deceived with, for the most part. And there may be a few that don't at the very top of that chain that Satan works through. Now, then it uses two words Evil men and imposters. Let's look at this adjective, evil, because it's not what it appears to be. When I think evil, first thing, my mind goes to immoral. And when my mind goes to immoral, I think of things like sexual immorality, lying and fraudulent activity, those kinds of things. But that is not really what this word means. Now, it doesn't rule out those kind of things, but it really means... Evil primarily in the sense of active opposition to the good. They are opposing what's good. We have to understand that. That's what this first thing is saying. The second word, imposters, harkens back to the examples previously in this chapter of Janus and Jambres. You remember them. They first opposed Moses in the court of Pharaoh. Then when they saw Moses and Aaron's power, do you know what they did? They joined up with the Jewish, and they left, according to Jewish tradition, they left with the Hebrews to travel on to the promised land. But they were there and instrumental in helping Aaron create that golden calf. You see, imposters. They appeared to be converted, but then they led in that kind of thing. Now... You could say, and there will be people maybe listening on the podcast, who say, Now, Doug, can it be that you're not overreaching a little bit here? We really don't have that in our churches today. In the evangelical movement here in our country, you don't really see that. I don't understand why you're being so strong. Well, I thought it might be appropriate this morning to demonstrate that. We're going to look at some people who are quoted in the news and who are involved in these things. The first one I want to draw your attention to is a guy named Doug Paget. Doug Paget is an author, a pastor, a social activist. I don't know those two things go together, but Pastor Social and the executive director of Vote Common Good. Now, Jan Howard will never tell you, to in any way support any position that Vote Common Good is pushing. I can assure you of that. But he is the co-founder of a church called Solomon's Porch. You know, that's where Solomon uh, dedicated the temple. It's It's quoted as being an evangelical church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he's also, of course, the executive director of Vote for the Common Good. He's a leading voice for progressive Christianity and why voters should make faith, hope, and love their guide for voting criteria as opposed to party choice or the platforms. But here's a quote from him. At Solomon's porch, sermons are not primarily about extracting truth from the Bible to apply to people's lives. So our sermons are not lessons with precisely divine belief So much rather, they are stories that welcome our hopes, our ideas, and our participation. That is exactly opposite for what this class stands for. We are all about extracting truth from the scriptures that we can apply to our lives. Now, I find one kernel of truth in his statement. They're all about telling stories, if you know what I mean. Uh, that was a phrase used by mothers when I was growing up, and it was many times directed at me, but that's Doug Paget. Let's look at another one. Dan Kimball. He is a pastor at Vintage Faith Church. Vintage Faith vision statement that I found identifies that they desire to be a worshiping community of missional theologians. A worshiping community of missional theologians. Well, when I look at that, that sounds really good to me. Do I believe in worship? Well, absolutely. Do I believe in missions? Absolutely. Do I believe in theology? Yes, I do. Much of Kimball's writings question the existing forms of church and their effectiveness in in an increasingly post-Christian culture. And here's what he says. It isn't about clever apologetics or careful exegetical or expository preaching. Emerging generations, understand that millennials, emerging generations are hungering to experience God in worship. We don't need any of that Bible stuff. Let's have a godly divine experience here. Yes, mystical. You begin to see what is going on. This stuff is real in our nation right now. And what is going on? Now, here's another fella. Leonard Sweet, he's a preacher, a teacher. He claims to be a historical theologian and a theo-semiotician. A semiotician. What in the world is a semiotician? Well, I had to look that up. I, you know, theo has to do with God, but a, a semiotician... Semiotician is the study of signs and symbols and their use or interpretation. It sounds to me like he is a godly crystal ball reader or something. I don't know. But godly part really doesn't fit in that definition, does it? But the idea is, what do you think has more authority in his mind? The symbols or signs that he interprets are what the Bible says. Yes. Well, let me tell you, here's this quote I found from him. A spiritual tsunami has hit postmodern culture. Spiritual tsunami. At first, that sounds kind of good, you know. Spirituality uh, in a godly form is what our nation needs. But that's not what he's talking about. The wave will build without breaking for decades to come. The wave is this. People don't want to know about God... They want less to know about God. They want new experiences, especially new experiences of the divine. Now, at best, that's double talk. And at most, that's evil men and imposters telling, trying to deceive you. Now, the one thing in his statement that we need, we do need a spiritual tsunami. But that's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to be a giant tidal wave to sweep across our nation and bring revival. That is not what he's talking about. He's talking about a tidal wave of putting away those dusty old Bibles and allowing new experiences to guide us in how we live and how we believe. That is deceived and deceiving. He is one of those people. Another one, Brian McLaren. He's noted as an author, speaker, activist, and public theologian. Now, I'm not sure what a public theologian is, Uh, I know what a theologian is, but I've never known a public one. He was a former college English teacher. That would tell you something. And a pastor. And now is a passionate proponent for the Center of Action and Contemplation. Now think about Action and contemplation. Those two don't seem to go together with me. His philosophy of ministry is this. Something beyond a belief system or doctrinal way or even a practice. I mean an attitude. My ministry should be an attitude towards God and our neighbor and our mission that is passionate. What's the focus of of what his position is? Passion. Passion. Now, let me ask you, do you remember from our study in Elijah that the priests of Baal could never be slighted for not being passionate. Remember as they were praying that Baal would bring down fire from heaven and and light their, they were cutting themselves and spilling the blood on the altar and doing all these things. They were passionate. They were just passionately wrong, like Mr. McLaren. And so we need to see, here another. Now one that some of you may not, why do you keep talking about him? Because he's a leading proponent of deceiving and being deceived in our nation. And his name is Rick Warren. He is the author of The Purpose Driven Life and The Purpose Driven Church. Now, I have to make full disclosure here. There was a time in our church when I was a teacher here in this class and our leaders said we need to teach The Purpose Driven Life. I trusted the leaders in our church and I said, okay, I will do it. Now, to myself, I said, I'm not going to use your materials. I'm going to create my own. But that was in 2005. And I did not strongly look through that book and try to say, is there anything wrong in here? Because I figured, well, they're not going to have us teach something that has error in it, certainly. And, of course, most of you would say, really, the real reason, I wasn't married to Julie then. So, you know, that... (laughs) Julie keeps me on the straight and narrow. What does it say in that book? Well, Rick Warren, you remember, he established the Saddleback Baptist Church and was in Southern California, and he turned it into a megachurch. Along the way, they decided, you know, we need to drop the name Baptist because that's offensive to a lot of people and will prevent people from coming into our doors. And so... Uh, He followed and helped set up the mega church growth plan that does things that is amazing to me that they would do in a church. And these church growth gurus, what they will do to try and convince people to come into church, especially non-believers, is amazing. I'm going to give you an example from Rick Warren's church. They had growth like you wouldn't believe. Not the kind of growth I would want, but... It was growth. And in fact, on their 25th anniversary celebration, they had 30,000 congregants and visitors there in their church. And Rick Warren stated that he was going to do something to start the service that he's always wanted to do. He was going to sing to them a song written by Jimi Hendrix called Purple Haze. Some of you are familiar with that song, some of you are not. Purple haze is about drug. I, I just want you to see. I, I have some some of the lyrics here, not all of them, but some I'm going to read to you. Purple haze all in my brain. Lately things just don't seem the same. Acting funny, but I don't know why. Excuse me while I kiss the sky. Purple haze all around. Don't know if I'm coming up or down. Am I happy or in misery? Whatever it is, that girl put a spell on me. Purple, you know, like Adam, blaming it on women. Uh, purple haze all in my eyes. Don't know if it's day or night. You got me blowing, blowing my mind. It is, is it tomorrow or just the end of time? In a 25th anniversary church service, that's what you're going to sing to your congregation and visitors. Well, Rick Warren has retired from Saddleback Church. And he's now at large, but he helped to install the new pastors. And you notice I said pastors, plural, Andy and Stacy Woods, husband and wife, pastor team. Does that comply with scriptural mandates? I don't think so. So, what does Rick Warren's best selling book really say? Let's go through and look at some of the things. Here's two quotes. First, God won't ask you about your religious background or doctrinal views. This is in context of saying, well, when you meet God, he's not going to ask you about those things. What it's implying is those aren't important to God. Other things are important. He doesn't need to ask you about your, your religious background or your doctrinal views. Second statement. Jesus said our love for each other, not our spiritual beliefs is our greatest witness to the world. I want you to think about that. Some of you are familiar with logical fallacies. And logical fallacies, I think, is important for us to recognize that are going on all the time today is the logical fallacy of the straw man, where you create a straw man of the other person's beliefs, but it's not really their beliefs. And then you destroy the straw man. And you say, see, their position is destroyed. Well, the thing that you destroy really wasn't their position. Now, does the Bible say they'll know us by our love? Yes, it does. But you've got to understand what's going on here. If I'm really going to love people with agape love, the kind of love that God gives, I have to have a doctrinal basis for that, a foundation for that. I have to understand God's love for me and my willingness to dispense that love to others and where I get it. If it's just my love it's not gonna work. It's gotta be God's love. But if you cut truth from the equation, there's no framework for loving other people. Now, look at something else Rick Warren has said. He said, today, many assume that spiritual maturity is measured by the amount of biblical information and doctrine you know. So, Mr. Warren suggests that we, As a Bible-based church, our teaching that spiritual maturity is determined by biblical knowledge. Straw man, do we think spiritual maturity is determined by biblical knowledge? No. But here's what we do think, and this is important to understand. We teach that it is not data in the mind that measures spiritual maturity. It is living consistently with the Bible knowledge that we have acquired. Knowledge must always lead to the development of wisdom or it becomes estranged from its value or purpose. But you can't have wisdom, which is knowledge applied, until you first have knowledge. You see what they're trying to do? Let me show you something else Rick says. The Bible is far more than a doctrinal guidebook. The last thing many believers need today is to go to another Bible study. We already have no far more than we are putting into practice. Don't need another Bible study. You see, because you don't need biblical knowledge. You just go based on experience. And you know, you just fall into the movement of this spiritual reality that you can experience while singing Purple Haze. Now. He does say a couple of interesting things. He said, uh, I found in his book, he says, a sermon series should never go beyond eight weeks. Well, we're in trouble in this church. (laughs) He also said, some pastors spend more time in Daniel 70 weeks than Daniel did. Well, that sounds funny. Don, didn't we do that? (laughs) Yeah, we did. We had much more information available to us, though, than Daniel did. Yes, ma'am. They, since they don't teach the Bible, what do they teach those people that join? What's their thing? It's all kinds of things, but what they specialize in is dividing people up and having small groups and going around. What do you think this means? What do you think this means? What do you, nobody's prepared. Everybody just kind of regurgitating what comes first thought. And if, of course, they've been reading Jesus' calling, no telling what's been dropped into their mind. Some people think stop with the Jesus calling. There was an interview that I found that a journalist, I'm assuming he's a journalist, named David Coe, had with Rick. And Rick made the following pronouncements. I'm looking for a second reformation. A second reformation. What what does that mean? The reformation of the church 500 years ago was about belief. This one's going to be about behavior. The first one was about creeds. This one's more about deeds. It's not going to be about what does the church believe, it's going to be about what the church is doing. Do you notice the emphasis here? It's no longer on biblical understanding, just on activity. That's what's taught in the purpose-driven life. And you notice, in your notes I have the pages where these quotes come from. Biblical understanding was not designated by God to be the last level of attainment. But God did intend it to be the first level of attainment. Uh, It's to be a foundational level. And without that foundation, we can't live a a victorious Christian life. Now, I've got one more person I want to speak about. There were more that I could do, but I think I'm proving the point that this is alive and well in our churches today. There is a megachurch over in Georgia uh, in the northern part of Atlanta. And it has multiple... It has multiple campuses. The main one, you say, is in Marietta. It's North Point Ministries. Right, Don? And who is the pastor there? It's Andy Stanley. He is the son of the legendary preacher Charles Stanley. His ministry, though, is not, he didn't follow in his Southern Baptist father's footsteps. He has a non denominational evangelical Christian church. In an interview with Christianity Today, he was asked this. What do you think about preaching verse-by-verse messages through the books of the Bible? Teaching or preaching verse-by-verse through the Bible in an exegetical manner. His response was, guys that preach verse-by-verse through books of the Bible, that's just cheating. And it's cheating because it would be easy. First of all, that isn't how you grow people. No one in the Scriptures modeled that. There is not one example of that. Now, I guess I've been cheating all my life, just about, because that's what I do. Our pastor is a great cheater too, because that's what he does. And the pastor before him, and the pastor before him, and the pastor before him, and the pastor before him. But now look at the last part of his statement. No one in the scriptures modeled that. There's not one example you could show me if you were to read Nehemiah chapter 8, you'll find they did exactly that. If you were to read the revival in 2 Kings 22 with Josiah when they found the book of the law that they had lost and they started reading it verse by verse and explaining it and creating a great revival in Israel, you would see that's not true. If you go to the New Testament to Acts chapter 2 and the sermon... That Peter delivered on Pentecost. You will see. Passage by passage by passage. Precept upon precept. You see, these men are deceived. And they're deceiving others. So let's go now to the next part of this passage. And what it has to say. You see, you remember in verses 10 and 11. We studied nine parts of Paul's life. Now we're going to see nine admonitions to us. He's warned us first of the coming persecution, and now He will teach us how to understand it. Starting in verse 14, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Notice this is a four-part continuum. It's continue, learn, be convinced, know. Now let's look at each of those words for just a second. Continue, that means to remain or abide. Jesus ever used that term? Remain or abide in what? The teaching that he gave us. You mean the one that gives you biblical knowledge? That these men told us we didn't need? Exactly. So you continue in it. Remain steadfastly in the Bible teaching. Not allow elements of apostate to deceive us or to cause us to compromise. Then learned. This word means learned in a way of your increasing your knowledge. Not only do you continue in that study, you have to be increasing in your knowledge as you go along. It is my hope that you can join with me because every Sunday I've increased in my knowledge if I spend all week studying. And I hope you do too. And that's the second part of this. Increase in your knowledge. Next, be convinced of. If you remember our study in Elijah, what does he build his life mission on? His conviction. It was, remember, it was a three-part conviction. God was real. He was God's man. And God provided him the means and the resources to face whatever challenge was before him. Do you think when this coming apostasy is upon us, we will need to remember the reality of God, that we're his man or woman, and that he will provide us the means and the resources to meet whatever challenge Satan puts before us? Yes, we will. And he is saying this is to be convinced of. It's a conviction of being certain of what we have learned. So he's saying, you have to first remain in the teaching, you have to increase your knowledge as you're going along, and you have to be convinced, absolutely convinced, of the truth of what you've been taught, that you can rely on it, that it is trustworthy. And finally, he says, you have to know it. Here it's the word Edo, to perceive, to discern, and to discover. As you apply this knowledge, God will bring you this kind of, as you apply this learning, then God will bring you this kind of knowledge that you can rely on God's Word. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. It's a common thing that we knew, and I'll give you an example from my life. There was a time when I started to get really serious about this beautiful girl who lived up in McKinney with her mother. And her name was Julie. And Julie took me to an antique store once. And she said, I want to show you this. And there was this beautiful ornate wooden box. And she opened it up. And in it was a set of Russian-made goldware. She says, I'm saving my money. I want to buy this. And I said, really? Are you sure? Oh, yes. I love this. And an idea came into my mind closed the box and I said okay and we left and I took her home and where do you think I went immediately after I dropped her at home (laughs) and I went back there and I bought that set but it was getting close to birthday time but what I did is the next time I went up there Julie had called and she was in tears they sold my goldware (laughs) and it worked out perfectly for my plan Because I went and I hugged her mother, Sonia, but whispered in her ear, I bought it. Now, will she keep my secret or not? (laughs) I found that she did. So now I know when I go and ask her ahead of time, can I have your daughter's hand? she won't tell her before I ask her. And I learned that I could trust Sonia to keep my secrets. You see? That's the concept here. You know it because you've perceived it. You've seen that it works, that it's real. And that's this concept that he's saying I want you to know. And that's how we get this foundation. Now, where is he saying we get this foundation? Who's he saying first that you get this foundation from, Timothy? Paul. His teaching, Paul's teaching, he learned it from Paul. Well, not completely. He learned both Paul and Timothy, you see, had been built into them an Old Testament foundation. And I want you to think about this. Think about Paul first. At Paul's time, who was the greatest Hebrew scholar of the Old Testament? Gamaliel. Gamaliel. Who became Gamaliel's star pupil? Paul. Paul. Until, of course, he converted. But up until that time, he knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. What about Timothy? When Paul got to him, did he have any prior knowledge of the Old Testament? Yes. Who built it into him? His grandmother and his mother. And they built that into him. They call it the sacred scriptures. They didn't have any New Testament then. It was only Old Testament. But that is the foundation for knowing who and what Jesus Christ was. When Jesus had to chase after some reluctant disciples who were going home and giving up after he'd been killed, what did he do? And you found that story in Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to these two, I believe is a married couple who were on their way back to their home in Emmaus. And he said to them, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart. So how can it be a married couple if it says men? In the Greek, like in the Hebrew, you can have plural masculine and plural feminine. But what do you do if it's a mixed group? You use masculine, plural masculine. So just understand that. Uh, Foolish men... And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I've had a wish before. I wish I could have been there listening and that he could speak in English too. So I could thoroughly understand what he was saying. I would be so busy writing notes, my hand would probably fall off. But... That's what he did. Now, I want you to notice something in this next verse, in verse 15. And that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now this term, sacred scriptures, refers to the Old Testament. That's the only thing it could be. But I want you to... ...to look at something that I think is extremely important... ...and it's been very valuable for me to learn in my life. What is this word up at the top? How long did he know about this? These scriptures, these sacred writings. Child. What does that mean? Child. I mean, when a child is old enough, you start. This is the Greek word blephos. Blephos. If you were to look in the second chapter of Luke... When, for example, the shepherds came in to worship Jesus that night, very night he was born, what did they call him? The shepherds came in on the very night he was born. Blephos is the word, babe, newborn infant in the second chapter of Luke. Now, go back a chapter. Do you remember when Mary, while she was carrying Jesus, went to visit Elizabeth? And when she appeared there to talk to Elizabeth, what did John the Baptist do? Yeah. Left in her womb. Wait a second. He wasn't, John, he, wasn't, he wasn't born yet. What word do you think it used to describe John? Didn't use his name. Blephos. Now, all I can tell you is this. I'm going to try to tell it to you under control. God gave me two boys who've been called to the mission field. Immediately upon learning that Barrett was conceived, I divided the Bible up and I started reading it to him. He only got about 92% because he came four weeks early. I did exactly the same thing with Brooks. He got 96% because he got there two weeks early and I had a more uh, concentrated plan. I read it to him before they were ever born. When Brooks came out, the doctor took him, they did the Apgar, And they were, he was crying, as most babies do. And they started to bring him back over and I said, give him to me. Are you sure? I said, yes, give him to me. Brooks, I've been waiting. I started talking to him and he immediately stopped crying. Why? Because he recognized my voice. I'm telling you, that's what I did. Now, what does it say about these sacred writings? They give you wisdom. What does that mean? Can God just make a plan to give you wisdom immediately? And just, bing, you've got it. Okay, hey, did that, who did he do it to? Solomon. I don't find in the scripture anywhere else where he did that. Maybe in a specific instance, I don't know, you know, limited. But Balaam was the wisest man to ever live. And that was because it was a gift from God that he gave him. You can look at that in the scriptures. Does God have any other way for us acquiring wisdom? Absolutely. He does. He wants you to acquire it. Most of the time, he wants you to work for something because when you work for something and you gain it, you appreciate it more. And he has a plan. And to me, it's best illustrated in the book of Proverbs where he's writing. Let's look first in Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Not wisdom, knowledge. Now, this is in chapter 1. Knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now they're saying, why, why would that follow? Uh, wisdom and instructions, they despise it. Because it begins with knowledge. Knowledge applied creates wisdom. Look in Proverbs 9:10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Wisdom is based on knowledge that has been applied to situations, and it gives you the wisdom. First comes knowledge, which if put into practice or applied to a life, it generates wisdom or wise behavior. We need to understand that. So what should Timothy be doing as a leader and teacher in his church? The same thing that Paul instructed him to do in 1 Timothy 4, 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of the Scriptures, to exhortation, and to teaching. What is that saying? It says, in your worship service, what should you always include? Public reading of the Scriptures. Do we do that? Yes, Yes, we do. And we should. We should never skip it. Now, some people may get mad at me for saying it. But it seems to me, if you got a choice between two songs or one song, or three songs and no scripture reading, or two songs and one scripture reading, it's clear what you should do. But the fact is, I am so thankful that our church publicly reads the scriptures and honors them when they do that. Exhortation. We need to have exhortation from the pulpit. We need to have the pastor exhorting us on what to do and what not to do. And we need to get that from him. That's what he is saying. And then finally, we need teaching. And hopefully that is something that we're doing in our church. Public reading, teaching, doctrines, precepts, and admonitions. Now before we finish, well, I want you to consider one last time because... Let me tell you, the verses that come next are ones I've been waiting the entire time we've been studying 2 Timothy to teach, and I can't wait. Uh, There'll be one part of the verse 15 that we haven't finished and we didn't have time for that we're going to speak on, and then we'll start in verse 16. We may be there a little longer than Daniel's 70 weeks, but be that as it may, consider where the power comes from, and I want you to see something here, the men and women who have real godly spiritual power in their lives, it doesn't come rawly from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the Holy Spirit energizing the scripture and the Bible knowledge in that person's life. He energizes it. The new believer can't be that strong until he has ingested God's Word because the Bible is a living document. Now, some of those who are ignorant of real life who sit on our Supreme Court, they think the Constitution is a living document. It is not. It is a static document or supposed to be. Anyone who tells you not is misinformed. No, they're one of those deceived and deceiving. But the Bible is a living document. You see, Satan wants to counterfeit things and he wants to, to, to weaken things. He, he may not say Jesus is bad. He just wants to say other people are on an equal level to him. That's the way he works sometimes. Three passages I want you to see. Two I think you're very familiar with. Maybe one you're not as familiar. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So will my word, by which comes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. It won't return without succeeding. God's word does that. He compares it to the rain that gives us seed and food. If His Word can do that, it's alive. It has its own means. He disperses it, and it comes back to Him, not empty and not without succeeding. Now, Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my Word like fire, declares Yahweh, and like a hammer that shatters rock? That's powerful. And Hebrews four twelve, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is God's Word. This is our primary weapon in the face of apostasy. You say, well, what? Reading or quoting something to these apostates is going to make a difference? If it shatters rock, yes. How hard can their heart be that the Word of God can't shatter it if He wants it to? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could study. I thank you for the time that we could understand. And I pray that you give us understanding and that we save this knowledge in our hearts, but we allow you to grow it into wisdom and you allow us to mature and exercise the power that your Holy Spirit wants to do by utilizing your word in our hearts. Help us to be prepared always to give an answer to anyone who makes question of us, of the reality of our God, the fact that we belong to Him, and that He has the power and the resources to enable us to meet whatever challenge is put before us. Thank you for these great gifts you have given to us. Help us to share them freely. Help us to be dedicated to sharing what you have given to us so wonderfully. I pray these things in Jesus' name and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.